1: We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraft accessories of OK.com. This week
0: on Hangar Talk, Vans Aircraft is feeling the
1: crunch. And six Southwestern venues are considering hosting the National Air
0: Races. The FAA is clarifying some confusion over low-G maneuvers in Robinson helicopters. Speaking of the FAA, we now have an administrator. And David, you flew with Gammy 100 ul
1: I did, Ian, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. It was really, really interesting. And I flew with Mark Baker, so that was a bonus. All right,
0: cool. You ready to do some Manger talk? Let's do it, Ian.
1: From AOPA your
0: freedom to fly this is hangar talk 1056, turn right, heading final 132.4. Turn right, with your host, hosts five,
1: ian twombley five, and five, david tulis right. this is hangar talk
0: welcome to hangar talk everybody i'm ian Twombly. and i'm david tulis David, our guest is um, a guy that I got to speak with a couple weeks ago, super neat guy, great business idea. His name is Mike Cattelfamo, and he has developed virtual flight sim training.
1: Ian, you got to explain that a little bit more to me before we introduce the guest. Uh, what is all virtual home simulator training?
0: Yeah, so I mean, you know, you can buy a PC or go crazy and, you know, build your own airline cockpit, but a lot of us... We've got these sims, we don't really know how to use them, right? And so it's okay. like, if we go to the flight school and sit there with an instructor and a red bird, we, we get it. But like at home, a lot of people use them kind of as toys. And so Mike's company, Flight Sim Coach, you use your home setup and get virtual instruction. Mike's a former airline pilot. A lot of his instructors are former airline pilots. It's really high level quality stuff too. Well, thank you for tracking them down. And I look forward to hearing more about it in a few minutes. Yeah. So let's get started on the news. This one shocked us a little bit. Vans Aircraft. Oh, yeah. Totally shocked Yeah. Me. Which, well, as somebody said on Avwood, and they're right, they are experimental amateur build. I mean, they are the big boys. More than 11,000 kits, you know, yeah, completed, completed. Yeah. and even even thousands more sold. Yep. Yeah. So they're feeling the crunch. They're having major cash flow problems. A video came out over the weekend uh, with Dick Van Grunzen. And yeah, it's not a good situation there.
1: No. And the way I understand it uh, from talking to Dave Hirschman and also reading a little bit more about it, the van's aircraft parts started to have some issues with the laser cut parts in particular, And and so folks were asking to cancel their orders. And the company was uh, stand up about it, and and issued refunds. Mm-hmm. A lot of that uh, refund, I, I think, came from from Dick's own pockets, if I understand. Yeah. And he stood stood up for that, and was helping you know owners and builders out. But that sort of exacerbated a problem that they had with some shipping costs with with you know shipping parts. And increase in volume of orders, which uh, they had to hire more workers to fulfill those orders, and so is the proverbial snowball of financial hardships. Yeah. But but it was a huge surprise. And I saw the video over the weekend, and I mentioned it to a couple of our folks, and I had no idea. But in the vans community, they had been talking about this for quite a while.
0: Yeah. Some of those parts. Yeah. And of course, they because of the pandemic and and the you know just the general popularity of EAB. They've grown massively over the last couple of years. I think they had a huge increase in orders. So even that is, you know, as you said, they had to hire a bunch of people. That's kind of hard for small companies to weather that sort of crunch sometimes. And so, uh, you know, it takes that one real, you know, parts problem that they have. And uh, man, things go south really quickly. I mean, this is just a couple of months we're talking.
1: Right, right. And uh, one of the other things that was a key to this financial crunch was, and, and we didn't mention it right at the beginning, but... There was inferior primer applied to some of the parts and it was sourced from overseas hmm. and that led to corrosion. And so that was another of the trifecta of missteps, if you will, that yeah. that helped to you know to bring a crunch right to a head. And, and like we said a minute ago, uh, Dick, Van, Dick Van himself was funding, the company. Yeah. And he and he just doesn't have that much money in his pockets to keep doing it. So they were looking for other outside financial resources. And I hope that they can get that because yeah. it is such a popular model and they're virtually everywhere.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's a ton of value in the company. And so, you know, whether, hopefully they, they can weather this on their own and it'll uh, just be a couple of months and they'll be back up on their feet. But um, obviously it's not going away. The company because there is value there, so it'll just take some time, hopefully. And um, I think builders will have to be a little bit patient as they look to source, you know, some new kits and new parts. All right, David Reno. We've talked a few times about how we can't really call Reno Reno anymore. It's the national no, championship air races <laughs> somewhere else. But uh, you know, we knew there were going to be some. Um, we knew they were going to go somewhere. Yes, and there's an RFP out there. Yeah, and then, so they've right. announced six, six locations, six potential cities. And
1: you know, let's start by saying that this is a real money maker for, for Reno, where it has been held for quite some time. In the past year alone, they've garnered about 750 million dollars mm. for the local economy. So imagine the impact that that would make on a small community like Buckeye, Arizona, mm-hmm. which is one of the venues being considered, or Casper, Wyoming, or Pueblo, Colorado. I'm not going to put you on the spot too much, but there are three others. If you wanted to read them, to yeah, our
0: listeners, yeah. So um, Roswell, New Mexico, Thermal, California, and Wendover, Utah. So I I spent a little bit of time looking at these because you know one of the complaints about from the city of Reno, I guess, was encroachment, and obviously they're worried about liability and other stuff as well. But yes, encroachment, I know, was one thing. And so I looked at the you know quote unquote encroachment going on at Reno, and then sort of compared it to some of these others just from the satellites because I was curious. Okay. Surprisingly, of all of those places, guess what would I would consider at least to be the most encroached currently? I'm guessing
1: I'm guessing Buckeye, which I've been to because it's think, not right? far from yeah,
0: it's it's not near far Phoenix. From Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. Roswell. Oh Roswell, New Mexico. To me, because there's like a um I think there's a college just on the north side of the fence of the airport and like a little housing development on the south side. Oh wow. I know middle of nowhere, right? No, actually Buckeye, surprisingly, it seems to be, I mean, I know the city's right there, but it, the airport seems to be completely surrounded by farmland. And I don't know, best I can tell from satellite, it's like sod farms or something.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, um, but it, it's a flat area. Now there are mountains mm-hmm. nearby. Cause I was at our Buckeye fly in last year, w- which we are also partnered up again in 2024, but, um, that is an interesting area. Uh, Let's l- speak a little bit more about Buckeye. The mayor Last year, last year's mayor was on board with having multiple events at Buckeye, mm-hmm. including having us back. Yeah. So to me, it's no surprise that they that but they put the in a, a request. Yeah. Right. I think that would be an interesting area, not too far from Phoenix, so you can get there pretty easy. Easy airline traffic. Yep. And for the competitors, I you know. A lot of competitors fly in, but I think some of some folks, you know, truck their aircraft in as well.
0: Yeah. Well so, and obviously and their need, teams. And as right. you said, I mean, most people are showing up via the airlines and driving over right. to wherever. So you know, when you look at it that way, it's like, boy, Casper's kinda of in the middle of nowhere and so Yeah,
1: is, it is. So and is it's Roswell. windier than heck in Casper. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I gotta tell you, when I was flying the TriPacer across the country, uh, you know, one of my coaches, Dave Hirschman, said there will be no friendly Casper ghost for
0: you, you know, do not land at that airport, <laughs> yeah. you know, light, flight plan for elsewhere. So I was, you know, Buckeye, one downside of Buckeye is the runway is only 5,500 feet. So if they want to bring in like the Thunderbirds or oh, right. Blue Angels, they're going to have to base elsewhere and then come over for the show. So that that's, you know, a bit of a downside, not huge though, but... I was surprised because I first thought, well, Buckeye, man, it's so close to Phoenix. But when you look at it, it's really not bad in terms of airspace and everything else.
1: It's a great airport for that kind of a deal. And no kidding. But I don't have any experience with Thermal, California or Wendover, Utah. Yeah. So
0: I'm not sure how those venues stack up. I hadn't heard of Wendover either, but it's west of Salt Lake City. It's actually where the Bonneville Salt Flats are.
1: Oh well, that would be good then, Ian, because yeah. and there's been traditional racing in the salt flats, for, you know, if, for
0: for, for yeah, hundred years or so. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. So it'd be interesting to see where they go. Obviously, they're going to look at look at all that, right? The infrastructure, airline infrastructure, roads, parking for cars, right. all of that stuff. You know, can they do the actual events safely? Obviously, a lot of these. I thought, boy, they're really high elevations, but actually, they're kind of the same as Reno. A lot of them. So yeah, it, actually that will be interesting if they go to a place like Buckeye which is only a 1000 feet versus like a, up at about 5000. It'll it'll be interesting to see how fast, how much faster the speeds are. Their performance might their
1: performance might be increased, but then yeah. yet again, depending on when the races are and they were traditionally in September, it's still pretty warm out there in the in the Rockies and in the West, so
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: That would be yeah. the trade-off.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's right.
1: Now, I'm excited a little bit to hear more about the next story, Ian, because you know a lot more about helicopters than I do. But tell us about the FAA clarifying these low-G maneuvers during training in Robinson helicopters.
0: So, yeah, this is an interesting story. Low-G is obviously something that afflicts these two-bladed helicopters like the Robinsons and the Hueys and stuff like that. And so there is a prohibition. Well, let me back up. The, the SFAR for the Robinson requires low G training, right? Okay. Because if you get in a low G situation in the helicopter, you want to make sure you react appropriately. However, the aircraft doesn't allow it. You know, there's a prohibition against low G maneuvers. Like in the pilot operating handbook. Exactly. And so I think, you know, operators were reaching out to the FAA being like, well, hey, hang on a second. We can't do low G maneuvers in the helicopter, but yet you're requiring it for the SFAR. What gives? And so the FAA has basically said, okay, we understand Forget the low G training in the helicopter as part of the ESFRA, I guess.
1: Oh, okay. Which was published in 1995.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's been a long time. It is interesting because obviously it's all simulated. I mean, it's not like, at least when I, you know, my instructor, it's not like, you know, you just haul forward on the cyclic and say, okay, you're in a low G situation because obviously that would be hugely dangerous.
1: Well, wait a minute now. Explain to those of us who might have a question about why it's dangerous, what exactly the low g does because those blades i know are really flexible yeah and and my guess is that that it'll you know the blades will flex and bump the rest of the aircraft structure by the tail
0: yeah that's what it sounds like but no apparently what happens and boy somebody correct me on this please a a more current robinson pilot or instructor because this is I'm, i'm reaching back a little bit to my training but they discovered this in in vietnam i think on Huey's when they would do sort of, you know, nap the earth kind of stuff. My understanding is what happens is the blades unload, right? So okay. the, so Logi is, we are talking about the main rotor system, the blades unload and the tail rotor blade continues to produce power. Right. Okay. And so what you get is this rolling moment. And, and what happens is I think the natural inclination of course, is to roll upright. So, you know, you take the cyclic and you shove it left and then you basically shove it too far left and you, Bump the mast, okay. Which then you know the thing you get a structural failure. So the response in low G training is you you load up the blades, the main rotor blade, and so you actually pull back to reload that main rotor and then roll upright. So again, somebody please correct me if I'm wrong about that. I think that's accurate.
1: That is complicated, but you know what? Yeah. It, what it, what it does sound like is during training when you're getting familiar with the Robinsons, you're taught to do these maneuvers. And it sounds like that there's a very big risk involved in performing those maneuvers in the actual aircraft. Yeah. And so that's where the confusion lies.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do it for real. I
1: mean, it's okay to do it as a sim. Exactly. Right.
0: But if you're doing it for real, that would be a no-no. I mean, it's it's kind of like a VMC demo in a multi-engine, right? I mean, you, you can't fly below VMC because you're going to roll up on your back. And so you you sort of simulate what would happen if you got below VMC. It's the same idea. Okay. So, and you know, um,
1: kind of equating that to what would happen in a loss of power on takeoff in an aircraft, you know, your inclination is to pull back on the yoke or the stick when really you need to push forward. Yeah. And so, in this low G maneuver, it sounds like what you really need to do is pull up instead of rolling left, yeah. Pushing.
0: Yeah. Right. That's exactly right. And we'll be right back. All right, David. So, we've finally, finally have a new FAA administrator. Oh, man. It's taken a while too. But uh and it's no
1: surprise, but we're glad that Michael Whitaker was confirmed by the Senate uh, as the next FAA administrator on October 24th because he has experience in in the FAA. He's been there before. He's mm-hmm. done a lot Assistant done a lot behind the scenes as well. Yep. Yep. And he is a private pilot. And I want to say he's also on basic med. So oh, that's a that step right? in I the right, right direction. Okay, too. cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I heard that straight
0: from our advocacy VP. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think by all accounts, Michael Whitaker's a stand-up guy. He was confirmed 98 to zero, which uh, in this day and age, I think is pretty amazing. That's incredibly amazing. Yeah, he's got a great resume. I think he's going to do really good things. We're all, I think, excited to have him there, and congrats.
1: Yeah, and especially this time of of transition to FAA, we're looking at Mosaic coming on board. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some changes in the next two years. So we got someone who knows aviation, someone who's done it
0: before, and 98 to 0, I like those odds. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing he'll deal with, David, is 100 UL, or in general, getting the lead out of Avgas. That's right. So you went to Ada, Oklahoma. You flew on this as part of a Baron that AOPA will be using over the next few months. That's right. To get some detailed uh, test flight analysis of 100 UL showing its capability, showing that it's completely safe. You did the first flight in the Baron with Mark Baker. How did it go?
1: Well, first of all, it was a pleasure to fly with Mark Baker. You know, he and I have, have crossed paths before in other aircraft, but this was the first time I was right seat with him. Uh, It went well. First of all, he loves flying a Baron. He's had...
0: Yeah, he's a Baron guy, yeah. He's
1: had more than one or two. In fact, he told me he bought and sold one three times. So, um, (laughs) so, but he knows the Baron. It was a C-55 model. And the whole idea, Ian, is to fly an aircraft that our members fly so that we could test the... The in this case G one hundred UL the GAMI fuel and there are other fuels we, we would like to test as well but the first one out of the box is G one hundred UL and the left engine and the right engine are both monitored by a pretty robust Garmin engine monitor setup okay so we can take the we can take the left engine which is the uh, unleaded fuel engine and the right engine which is the av gas Fueled engine mm-hmm. and look at the results. Which cylinders are running hotter or colder? What about yeah. the EGTs? Very uh, cool. What about is there a difference in horsepower? What about a spark plug? Because, you know, on, yeah. on regular piston engines, about every 50 hours or so, it's a good idea to clean those spark plugs. Yeah, now, how? Of all the lead following. Yep. Right. How are, are they running cleaner, as, um, as George Brawley would, would tell us? So, George was there. He helped fuel the airplane up. Mark Baker helped fuel the airplane up. We mixed a little bit of Avgas with G100. So Avgas is blue, mm-hmm. right? And the G100UL is amber. Okay. And uh, as George would say, let's go back to our, our high school chemistry or even further, it's elementary school. And what, what happens when you mix yellow and blue?
0: I guess you get green.
1: You do get green. Okay. So,
0: so the green. <laughs> oh, so God.
1: yeah. So we uh, we looked at a, a decanter and it was uh it was green f- aviation fuel because nice. it was there was a little bit that. of uh, a yeah. yeah there was a little bit left over from our flight from Maryland to mm, gotcha. Oklahoma, but it's really interesting. And the airplane flew great. You might need to take a look at the baffling on it, but because they should be flying about the same cylinder head temperatures within you know, 10 degrees or so yeah, um, yeah. from one side to the other, just in general. But it was really, really neat to fly right seat with Mark Baker, too. That's the other thing I'd like to let our listeners know. If they ever get a chance, do not pass that up. So uh, I ran the radios a little bit. And then Mark showed me a couple of tricks on the, on the Garmin glass that I didn't know. So hmm. I,
0: I learned something from that flight as well. Cool. That's great. So, yeah, we're going to be flying this, like I said, for a couple of months. Many months, actually, I think, with the idea of always fueling it every time with G100UL in one of those tanks to feed one of the dedicated engines. Right. And uh, so we'll, I'm sure you'll hear lots about it because we'll be talking about it and all the channels about how it's going, what sort of temps we're seeing, exactly like you said. Yeah. What do plugs look like? Borescope in the cylinders, the whole deal.
1: Well, and one more thing that uh, Mark Baker wants to get the message out and the rest of our staff does too. He threw the gauntlet down, in and basically said— Anyone who is qualified to fly multi-engine aircraft, including, you know, movers and shakers that are in the industry, he would ask them to come to Ada, Oklahoma, and, and let's go fly. And let's demonstrate the viability of this test. And for, for folks to see for themselves how it can change the way that we feel our airplanes. So, like I said, the gauntlet was thrown down. And we'll hear more about that. And if you want to... If you, know, if you got a hankering to fly a Gammy G100UL and you got the credentials,
0: give us a call. Very nice. Cool. All right. Let's bring on Mike. Again, Mike started flight sim coach, former airline pilot who uh, was a longtime sim user, saw the benefits, but uh, understood that people weren't really using these at home very effectively. So came up through the pandemic with this really cool idea to offer virtual training. And I was excited to talk to him. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me and I appreciate it as well.
0: Yeah. So tell us about Flight Sim Coach. This is an entirely new concept. I've never heard of a company like this or a service like this. So what exactly is it?
2: Sure. So in a nutshell, what we do is we connect pilots with CFIs that are specialized in teaching remotely. So primarily we're focused on people that have a flight simulator at home and mm. they're either using it to prepare for some sort of in-person flight training, their private or instrument, or... Possibly also just to maintain proficiency. So that's the bulk of who we tend to work with. Uh, We also work with a number of people that are maybe not even using a simulator, but they just need help with a particular ground school topic or practicing Mm -hmm. their ATC calls, doing practice oral exams, really anything that you could do with a CFI sitting across from them. We can also do that sort of thing remotely. So that's really what we what we focus on.
0: Hmm. So. I've heard of like Pilot Edge, for example, where, you know, in, in VATSIM, where you start to network simulators. So somebody working at home can work with interactive ATC and that sort of thing. But this is this is different from that. This is, you know, they're either, let's say there's not an instructor locally, or maybe your instructor locally isn't into simulation. You might have one at home, but you, and you need some help. It's like the idea is you guys can step in through i guess your platform to be able to do that
2: exactly so we focus on connecting people with instructors that are already kind of uh, proponents of using a sim for these purposes as well as just people that are familiar with using remote tools that we have put together to facilitate this type of training remotely So, yeah, I mean, there there are certainly, you know, many CFIs could do this. If you already have a CFI, you can ask them, hey, are you able to help me out while I'm at home on any given topic? Or you've got a SIM, you can screen share it through Zoom and all that's doable. A lot of folks come to us so that actually haven't already been matched or, you know, uh, selected a flight school yet. So they don't have Hmm. an instructor, but they're trying to do everything they can before they get to the flight school to prepare, help bring the cost down and help them have more confidence by the time they step into the actual aircraft.
0: So it's, you know, for people maybe who haven't done simulation before and don't know the benefits or haven't really explored the benefits, they might think it's it's a toy, right? Started out as a game. So, and the impression could be that there are a lot of gamers who maybe want to learn more about aviation but is it actually that your your clients actually tend to be people who are interested in flying the airplane at some point and and they want to get a leg up essentially
2: definitely so there there certainly is a mix we work with a number of folks as well that are um they have no intention to ever fly for real Uh, maybe it's been something they've always dreamed of doing and doing it in the sim environment with remote instructors the closest that they'll ever be able to to come. But I would say the majority are people that are actively pursuing either their private pilot's trophy or instrument rating. Um, mm. And they're looking to get a leg up on on that sort of training.
0: Wow. So that's amazing to me. How, I guess, how do you find that people even explore that without, you know, because it used to be you just walk into a flight school, right? And that's how you explore aviation. So, I mean, how are people finding all this and getting connected with you in order to even get started before they get to that flight school portion of the training?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think uh, part of it is, you know, during COVID, a lot of people got into flight simulation period. That was kind of a driving force for a lot of people to be thinking Mm. about what can I do from home now that I can't be with my instructor in an airplane or be in flight school um, to be able to make some progress. So that kind of drove, I think, a lot of growth in the flight simulation industry in general. some of those people they started thinking like is there anything i can do to actually work with someone who's an expert both in the simulator itself and then also you know a qualified instructor to help me utilize it in the best way possible because you know as you mentioned a lot of people have this idea of flight simulation as kind of a game or you know there may be many pitfalls and bad habits that result from using it but you know what people started thinking is if I can have an instructor with me, you know, maybe that's a way I can mitigate some of those risks. So people, Mm. you know, would be kind of be searching like, you know, online flight lessons, things like that. And, um, that's, that's where they tend to come across our website.
0: Do you think that people have gotten past this idea that for simulation to be worthwhile, it has to be loggable. Like that's the only real benefit is, you know, can I, I've spent money on this. Can I put it in my logbook? If the answer is yes, it's worthwhile. And if the answer is no, then no. Um, obviously, What you guys offer is something beyond that. So do you find that people are starting to come around to that idea that it's it's more than just an hour in a logbook.
2: I think people are certainly not everyone. I would say more of the pushback might be from people that are instructors or more experienced pilots that maybe have forgotten what it's like to be going into a real world flight lesson in a real aircraft where, you know, the environment for learning is really terrible as as we know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a situation where it's stressful, it's loud, you're being bounced around potentially. And even though the time that is spent with our instructors is not loggable, whether it's on the student side or the flight instructor side, I, I, the way I'd like to like to think of the simulator is it's like the ultimate share flying tool. We all agree that, yes, chair flying is something that pilots of all levels need to be doing. The simulator takes that to the next level in terms of your ability to visualize various things. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, people are. Are looking at this not as just a way to save money because the reality is that you know most people are not finishing their private pilot certificate in 40 hours you know the average right. is uh, right. 60 plus so if you can shave that down through smart use of the simulator down to closer to 40 then there's certainly some cost saving advantage there even though none of the time that you spend at home can actually be logged.
0: Hmm. So I see on the website you guys have a a pretty impressive cadre of instructors and, and not just U.S. based. I mean, obviously with the web, it can be worldwide. So you have some that I think are maybe EASA and, and other ICAO certifications. So tell me a bit about that instructor core, how you recruited them, their backgrounds, their various capabilities, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, the, the instructor cadre is um, really uh, a, a unique mix of experience, um, background, location, Right now, we have 14 instructors, uh, primarily FAA, CFIs based in the U.S., but a couple of international folks as well. Actually, a number of them kind of just came across my website, and they liked what I was doing, and they just kind of said, hey, are you interested in adding more folks? Um, At the start, it was just me doing the instructing, but um, at a certain point, it's like, hey, I'm not an expert in this particular type of operation or this particular airplane. Some people come to us with very specific um, airplanes that they've modeled in their sim, and ideally, we'd be able to match them with the instructor that has, you know, a lot of real world experience in that particular aircraft. So that's where I started to look for, you know, trying to diversify as much as possible, the um, expertise that we have. So, you know, just to give you an idea of some of the instructors that we have, you know, these are all people, first off, that are in this because they like teaching. So they're not getting any hours out of this that they can use for their logbook to go towards a a flying job of any sort, mm-hmm. uh, so they like teaching and they also like flight simulation enough to have their own setup and that they're you know quite comfortable and proficient with helping yeah. other people using it. So um, you know we've got one instructor um, who's doing a lot of work with instrument students right now. His name is Alan, and you know he's a ten thousand hour uh, career CFI that um, in his you know day job, so to speak, he does the uh, 10-day accelerated IFR uh, courses for, you know, one of the companies that, that mm-hmm. does that. So for people that are going for their instrument to be able to work with someone like Alan before they actually meet with their instructor, whether or not they're going for an accelerated course is is irrelevant. But to learn from someone with that expertise and preparing uh, people to start that type of training, is really invaluable. We've got a couple active airline pilots. One is a a retired airline pilot that does um, aerial uh, firefighting. We've got one in New Zealand who's a helicopter, 10,000 plus hour helicopter pilot examiner. And yeah, people with all sorts of type ratings that really, it's a unique opportunity. Perhaps if you are going for maybe a type rating in a particular airplane to be able to prepare for that training at home, or if you have no interest in any of that, even just to kind of broaden your horizons. Like Curtis, he's a retired American Airlines pilot, the one that's um, in aerial firefighting, but um, he, he also is a avid glider pilot. So maybe you've always wanted to do some lessons in a glider, but you don't have that type of um, opportunity close by to where you live. So yeah. to be able to do this in the simulator, of course, it's not the real thing. And we can talk all you know in depth about what the limitations of a home sim are it certainly can't be used for everything, but certainly to kind of understand what glider flying is about and the basic principles can be done really well in a home sim environment at, you know, incredible convenience and cost. So for me, it's really exciting to be able to offer these opportunities to people, you know, from the convenience of home to do that.
0: Hmm. So you mentioned that you started out doing all the instruction. So I guess, take me back a little bit to the idea for the company, your aviation background. How did this all get started?
2: Yeah, so my my start in aviation, I would say, began with flight simulation. So starting in roughly 2000 was when I got involved in flight simulation itself. Mm -hmm. I think the sim was called uh, ProPilot. And one of my first memories of aviation and flight simulation was uh, my mom looking over my shoulder the very day I got my sim. I think I was trying to fly a deer jet using the, the keyboard and she's like, Mike, don't you ever think about becoming a pilot? Um, <laughs> so sorry, mom. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so that, that was, I think, uh, my start was just, you know, kind of going on trips with family on airliners and being like, this is really cool, but it kind of mysterious. And then I found, Hey, there's a way to simulate this at home on my computer. And that just kind of spiraled from there into all the other things. Community wise, you can do in flight simulation, like online air traffic control and, I think that's the case for a number of people, especially who are around my age that got their start in aviation through flight simulation. Eventually, through one of those communities, I met um, a friend, Jason, and he he was the one that um, kind of opened my mind to like, hey, I'm doing this in a sim, but actually, uh, he was I think only 12 or 13 at the time, but he was taking real flying lessons, and I didn't actually realize that at, you know at the time, and that that was something I could actually do that young. So that kind of got me started on, you know, trying to save money for taking lessons and, and trying to convince the parents to let me do that. So eventually uh, when I turned 14, that's when I started taking Asheville lessons, got my private instrument before graduating high school, and then ended up taking a, a bit of a detour from the flying path and went to college for engineering. I worked for mm-hmm. Going for four years, which was a great way to connect my passion with building new things and engineering with piloting. And during that time, I was also instructing, kind of got close to the 1500 hours, and thought, why not give the airlines a try? Because I know I'd always be curious what what that would be like. And it seemed like the situation at the regionals was changing quite dramatically. So I did that for three years and had a blast, but um, decided I wanted to kind of commit myself to building something something new and to kind of merge my passion for both teaching, which has always been something I've loved with flight simulation, which has kind of been a lifelong interest. So that's kind of what got the gears going on, you know, when I was looking for something I could do to combine those things that with the students I've taught in real aircraft, real world training, flight simulation has always been something that I have encouraged students to use and you know have tried to bring bring my laptop to you know the briefing room and you know have instrument students kind of work on their scan in a way that i thought was more efficient than paying for let's say a you know a full-on simulator that might cost yeah. you a hundred an hour just for the sim plus the instructor and you know certainly more effective than than doing certain things in the actual aircraft and then you know it was kind of a idea that hey you know this is also something that could be done uh, remotely so uh, around 2018, I started finding some some folks that were asking for this sort of thing online, and um, you know, began doing that myself. And then around COVID is when you know I began to actually build up the business uh, to the point where you know it's keeping me busier, and then starting to bring on more more instructors to assist.
0: Wow, very cool. Okay, you mentioned using simulation when you were teaching students, and so I remember, I guess I was an instrument student, and I, and I it was like Vor intercepts, and I just. I remember sitting there with my instructor and arguing about what was going on because, of course, I thought I knew what I was talking about because I was a strong-headed 20-year-old, you know. Um, But he actually knew. And I went home, and I think I had... It must have been Flight Sim 2000. and, And I taught myself intercepts. And that was like a light bulb moment for me. And I've been just really impressed with simulation ever since then. And it's... I think it's really interesting that it's gone beyond instrument now to much more than that, including, like you said, private. So I'm curious, you mentioned... Some of the benefits and limitations where do you see from a home sim perspective i mean obviously full motion and everything is a totally different but from a home sim perspective where do you see the biggest benefits and then maybe some limitations
2: yeah biggest benefits i think the number one area that the average student pilot or even instrument student can benefit from is the ability to connect your simulator to a network like you mentioned before a pilot edge where you have a home sim but you're flying around on your own You know, there might be an automated air traffic control system, but they tend to be not uh, super high fidelity. Mm -hmm. What uh, online ATC network would allow you to do is to actually be able to uh, talk to real humans that are providing air traffic control services, uh, you know, to a level that is sometimes almost indistinguishable from real life. Uh, you're tuning the same frequencies, you know, pe- keying the push to talk, and a real person is responding. So to me, that is, at least for during my own training, was the biggest benefit I got out of simulation where... You know, when I got into the real airplane, the radio work was not something that was really distracting to me. I could, you know, handle the radio work while focusing on what the instructor was was mm-hmm. saying with feedback on other aspects of the flying. So the more you can do that, the better. And I think radio work, at least for people that are flying in, you know, at towered airports and busy airspace is a big um, bang for the buck for use of your home simulator. And then, of course, there's the stuff like you mentioned with VORs. I mean, that's the type of thing that, you know, that really shouldn't be taught in an airplane the first time. You've got your textbooks and then, you know, videos. And then the next level, I would say, would be to be doing this in a home-based sim, either just playing around on your own or or having an instructor that's sitting beside you or remotely that can kind of Mm -hmm. guide you along the way. The areas that I feel that are a bit underutilized but still quite beneficial are the use of the sim as a really good visualization tool and in the sense of teaching some of the fundamentals that I think a lot of instructors in the past have said that, Hey, you know, I've got kind of a bad taste in my mouth from people that have come to me that have hundreds of hours of SIM time, but they tend to focus so much on the instruments and these habits are difficult to fix, uh, which is a completely valid concern. But my feeling was it didn't have to be that way because there's things you can do in the SIM to mitigate those downsides. For example, with the remote remote uh, coaching clients that I work with. Um, if they're a new student, I'll tend to, on um, you know, the very first uh, takeoff or two, actually cover up the entire instrument panel in the same way that you hear, okay, you know, instructor is going to put a sectional chart over the instrument panel. Well, we can do that very easily in a remote environment by just drawing a black rectangle over the entire panel, maybe except for the airspeed indicator. And then at that point, I can very clearly show the student where to focus their attention. Perhaps it's, you know, kind of on that left side of, the uh, dashboard where the horizon is intersecting the calling, I'll draw a circle Hmm. over it very clearly. um, And they understand exactly what we mean by flying visually by visual references hmm. um, in a way that I think is actually a lot more effective than the instructor trying to explain that when they're in the right seat and they can't exactly show the student what they mean by, you know, picking a screw on the cowling or right. whatever the case may be. In a sim, you yeah. can draw that super precisely and there's no confusion. So I think in that sense, hmm. there's a number of things that are underutilized in the sim environment for the private pilot student, certainly for instrument Students, um, most instructors, I think, are on the same page that this is something that's quite valuable and there isn't much potential for a negative um, transfer
0: of learning. So, at a minimum, though, what setup? I mean, obviously, you can get crazy with simulation, especially because hobbyists are involved and you can go, you know, just wacky. But there's got to be a minimum level of equipment that you need to at least to get some amount of reasonable benefit from this. So what do you guys recommend?
2: My own personal feeling is that you can get a lot of value out of a very, very simple setup. And the reality is a lot of the people that come to us, they are not you know, trying to optimize so much for the price aspect with you know, trying to pick the cheapest computer, the cheapest joystick. Right. So we tend to see people that have higher end setups. However, if you're not that person and you're looking for something just to get started with, I mean, there's a free flight simulator out there called Flight Gear. That's, uh, you know, very good. It may not be the most user-friendly, but if you can get past that, it's free. You can, you know, get the airplane in the air even without, you know, controls and just learn how to use VORs, learn how to, you know, Interact with different things in the cockpit, so the entry point is very low. But there's a balance between you know that low price point and the level of frustration that you'll experience with trying to do basic things like you know control the airplane. You know you can get a twenty dollar joystick off of eBay, but is your experience going to be super enjoyable? Probably not so much. Um, and if you're trying to learn things like you know trimming, it's nice to have that muscle memory to have an actual. Trim wheel that you can you can rotate and get you know a good feel for what that's going to be like. So not necessary, mm-hmm. but it improves the experience, and in turn, it makes people more willing to use their simulator, which is also an important piece. So yeah, I mean, for for someone that's kind of looking for a you know mid-range uh, type of sim setup, a lot of people are buying um, you know either X Plane or Microsoft Flight Simulator. Those are the two main simulators, uh, mm-hmm. main, the most popular sims at the moment. Um, and you guys can work is with fine either. For, yeah, yeah, we can work with either. E- either is you know completely fine. There's pros and cons to both, but um, we certainly either is very effective for for training purposes. Mm-hmm. Hardware-wise, a lot of folks are finding that the Honeycomb uh, Alpha and Bravo for Yoke and Throttle Quadrant is a good balance between price and, and quality. The feel of the controls is quite good. Um, and then certainly a, a set of rudder pedals, Honeycomb is working on coming out with those uh, soon, I think, if, if not already. So yeah, they're, they're a good uh, starting point to look at for kind of a mid range set of, of controls.
0: Very cool. Okay, awesome. And so if somebody's interested, they want to get more utility out of their sim experience, how do they find you? And um, do you have plans? Or how does how does the instructional part of that work pricing wise?
2: Yeah, so it, we try to keep it really flexible. Um, it, basically, if you go to flightsimcoach.com, you'll have a button where you can go see a list of the instructors. All of their rates are, are listed on the website. You can either purchase just a single lesson or if you purchase a package of, of uh, hours and you get a, a discount. So um, typically, we have people that will come to us and you know, they just want to make sure that it's a good match with the instructor they're they're selecting. Mm-hmm. So you can book a free 20-minute call just to make sure that it's a good fit. And then from there, uh, decide if you want to purchase a single lesson or or more. All of the instruction typically happens just over a Zoom call, uh, where the student will have Zoom running on their SIM computer, share their screen with the instructor, and then at that point, they see everything that, that you're seeing. We do have some tools on our end that allow us to do things like um, changing weather and remote failure initiation, if we want to fill the engine without the student knowing, through some plugins that we, we provide as well. But From the student standpoint, it's all uh, fairly straightforward.
0: Very cool. Okay. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Ian. I appreciate it as well.
0: Yeah, just I was really impressed. Um, smart guy, neat business idea. And I think it's cool that, you know, he's, he's reaching out all over the world. I mean, he's even got these European instructors. Well, that
1: is interesting. So it's, it's sort of a global educational environment. And like you said at, uh, at the beginning to introduce him, we're looking at home simulators that could be anything from the basic couple of boxes you can get mm-hmm. from Sporties or another retailer to a full blown full meal deal sim. Yeah. And just
0: yep. learn how to use it, use it correctly. Yeah. That's right. Oh, and I should tell you, they are offering gift certificates. So ah. if you're so inclined, for a flying friend over the holidays, uh, they're doing that. And it's a neat way to try them out. So I love it. Good job. Thanks for getting them. All right. I think that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Teal Don't forget, you can find us at
1: AOPA.org slash Hangar Talk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.